Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Odd. Jonathan is an investor and the CEO of Dakota Gold, a gold exploration company focused on revitalizing the Homestake District surrounding the historic Homestake Mine in South Dakota, which produced 40 plus million ounces of gold in its 100 plus year lifetime. He has raised over $600 million for private and public companies in the natural resource sector over the past 15 years. And he is passionate about the relevance of mining today and how it can be done with respect for the surrounding environment and communities. And we are so excited to have him. And also joining us today is my co-host, Jordan Mitchell. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited. Thank you so much. You are our first gold mining company uh, that we have had on this podcast. And so I am just excited to hear your origin story. How in the world did you get involved in this world of gold? So I have uh, was raised in Vancouver, and Vancouver has had a long and rich history of, of uh, being sort of the, the hub for small cap metals and mining. So a lot of the a lot of the better ideas, at least in the Western Hemisphere, and in, in metals and mining kind of start or originate in Vancouver. And there's a lot of uh, risk on, you know, uh, capital that, that's located in Vancouver that supports and finances these opportunities. So when I finished university, I, I started at a small brokerage firm in Vancouver that had a long and rich history of, of financing small cap metals and mining. So that's how I kind of got my start. And, and um, you know, in, in, in college, I took, you know, kind of finance and economics. So we had the final year of, of uh, finance class, there was a component to it that, that talked about gold. And it, it, you know, since then, it's really always been a big part of what I do. What is small cap metals and mining? What does that mean? Well, I think in the U.S., there's probably a different standard to what, what's considered small cap metals and mining, but sort of sub $100 million market cap. Got it. Okay. And so you start off there. What brings you to South Dakota? So I co-founded a company called Gold Standard Ventures in, in 2010, took it public in 2011, and it was sold to a, to a larger mining company called Orla Mining. That's a public company. It's about a billion and a half dollar market cap. And uh, my business partner and I, Bob Quartermain, who is a, a mining hall of fame guy, legend, uh, the two companies that he co-founded, uh, one of them is called SSR Mining. It's a $4 billion company. It's still public today. The other was a company called Predium that was uh, bought out for three and a half billion and is now Canada's fourth largest gold mine. We were looking for opportunities. We came across uh, this public company called Dakota Territory Resource Corp, which was led by uh, Jerry Aberley, uh, who was the last mine manager when Homestake shut down. So South Dakota guy, born and raised, went to the South Dakota School mm -hmm. of Mines, and he, you know, engineer and, and did a great job of assembling this, this land package, but didn't really have access to capital. So we were introduced to this. And what was appealing to us was, was to be kind of the first mover in the district. Not a lot of work has been done in this district since uh, Homesick was acquired by Barrick in 2001. And we leveraged our relationships with uh, Barrick, which is the world's second largest gold producer that bought Homestake. 
And we were able to negotiate the purchase of, 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 of three different assets from Barrick. Two of them are under option. And then significantly grew the land package from 5,000 acres to 50,000 acres. And we looked at, you know, dozens of different opportunities and liked the opportunity to grow this platform. Um, you know, you're in, a, you're in a red state. You're in a, a country where rule of law still applies. Um, and there just hadn't been a lot of work that, that's been done in this district for 20 years. So when the mine shut down, gold was $300 an ounce. And now gold is flirting with $2,000 an ounce. Wow. So the reason it shut down was just lack of, uh, lack of money, lack of resources, not lack of gold in the ground? Essentially, yeah. So, so in the, in the mid nineties, uh, home stake was, was producing, uh, in South Dakota and they were faced with a choice of, of reinvesting hundreds of millions, hundreds of, of millions of dollars back into the old mine to refurbish the mill, underground development, a new shaft. And they ultimately chose to buy uh, a public company called Plutonic Resources in Australia. So they, they didn't have any other capital to reinvest back into the old mine. And of course, gold being under $300 an ounce, it was a very challenging time in the gold industry. You know, kind of like when oil is $15, $20, $30 a barrel, it's, it's you know, margins are tough. Most, most companies are kind of bleeding. So it was a tough time for, for the gold industry. And, and, um, and that led to uh, the acquisition from, from Barrick in 2001. Okay. Now, getting into that world, what was that like? Was it smooth sailing? Was everything up and to the right? Or was it challenging? Uh, look, I mean, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But I think that um, we both saw um, sort of the perfect fit in merging kind of quarter mains and my commercial expertise. And, 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 and Bob, you know, as a mind builder and our sort of access to capital with with an area with an area that has so much uh, uh, historical relevance to not just U.S. gold mining, but gold mining on the planet. You know, this is still to this day the largest gold mine in the history of the U.S. Wow! And we've and we've surrounded it, and we've got an option over the surface with Barrick, and just the data we got, 125 years of data, was in paper format. So we spent almost two years digitizing everything painfully. And I think we kind of un underestimated just how much data there would be, but having that local expertise, having that local knowledge, uh, was invaluable. Wow. Now, why do you think it is like, as just a person who's, you know, living in the United States and I actually do somewhat, you know, I told you I, wa I like watching gold rush and Bering sea gold and that kind of thing. I'm aware of the, the current and past, you know, California, Alaska, you know, areas having a lot of gold, I never heard of South Dakota. Why, why do you think that is? Well, you know, I mean, I'm 46 years old, so I graduated from university when the mine was shutting down. Got it. So sort of our, our, our demographic is not as familiar with, with the home stake district. Um, but you know, you look at us gold mining today, it, it you know, it's, it's the third largest producer, like gold, uh, producing region in the world where 80, I think it's 82% of U.S. gold production comes from Nevada. So the Carlin trend, Cortez trend, and a lot of that's controlled and owned by uh, Barrick and Newmont. So there's been very little exploration work. 
uh, very little that's gone on in South Dakota. There's one producing gold mine in the state of South Dakota, and that's owned and operated by a company called Coor Mining out of Chicago. It's a public company, but there's not there has not been a lot of of um, exploration and development in the you know in the state of South Dakota since the mine shut down. Got it. So in our generation, it it kind of fell off the map. Yeah. Now, how much? how much further do you think it has to go? Like, are we getting to the ends of like, Hey, this has been around a hundred years and we've mined almost all the gold that's there. Or is there plenty of untapped land that you believe is still available there? Yeah. I mean, there's a saying in the mining industry that the best place to look for a gold mine is, is in the shadow of a head frame. And, you know, I, I think because Homestake had so much success following this ore body down to 8,000 feet, when they did actually step outside of the old mine and they started to explore, they were really successful. And that's all ground that we now have. Hmm. And, you know, this is private ground. So from a permitting standpoint, it's far more advantageous to be pursuing the development of a, of a gold resource or asset when you're on private ground. And we very strategically, we've done, I think, 39 individual land deals. We've done these deals with Barrick and we staked a whole bunch of ground and we did so when we were doing this merger. So we were in a quiet period. So, you know, kind of heads down uh, when, when, when Homestake was, was formed, uh, it was put together by an individual. His name was George Hurst. Um, and he's his family trust. I think it's worth 15 or $16 billion today. That was a lot of wealth created from Homestake. And what Mr. Hurst did, he wanted to buy up all the surface rights, mineral rights, water rights, timber rights and discourage anyone else from being in the district. So we were kind of planning ahead for success, you know, based on the data we got and the data we got really helped inform and open our eyes to this larger land consolidation. And it really helped with our, with our drilling that we're doing currently. Hmm. Now, you know, one of the things that it feels like I've never mined gold, but you know, they talk about gold fever it feels like part of the enjoyment that many people have is similar to gambling, right? That I, as a gold miner, am here making this bet, and I'm getting in the ground, and every week, every day, I get to see, did I make the right bet? Did we dig the right spot? Is it similar at your stage of the game, or kind of being at the bigger, you know, above, not above that, but like, uh, you know, owning more facets of it and moving more pieces, does it feel a little more calculated than that? Yeah, I would say that, that that's a great that's a great comment that you just made. I, I would say that there's a lot of people that don't do a lot of upfront due diligence and don't look at it from, you know, exploration development to permitting, you know, to to where you are in the cycle. Do, you know, do you have the right people? You know, I, I think having someone like like, you know, Bob Quartermain, who's my business partner and co-chair, who's built two multi-billion dollar companies, the way he approaches things, you know, very process oriented really aligned with shareholders. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes tougher to build a business in an industry where there's so much short-term money when you have to look long-term because there are cycles, you know, commodity price, what, what's the Fed going to do, you know, interest rates, inflation, there's all these factors you have to consider. But uh, I think when you, when you actually let the data speak to you, you can eliminate a lot of poor decisions. Hmm. And people get you know, these biases or, you know, they have the blinders on because they want to do something or, or they're chasing something. 
But when you really look at the, at, at the information, the data, objectively, you can eliminate a lot of bad choices. Yeah. I mean, we see that a lot in business, right? Where you almost play superstitiously. Like, ah, I got a hunch and I'm just going to follow that hunch. And sometimes you're right. Some of the most greatest discoveries have happened that way. But you also see a lot of people in gold and in business go bankrupt, you know, because yeah. they didn't think a little more strategically or zoom out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the reasons why a lot of businesses fail, one of the most common reasons is being undercapitalized. You know, and, and there's always things that, that can happen that can go on that are unforeseen. But you have to kind of factor that in and build that into your models because because no one can predict where the gold price is going to go. No one can predict what, you know, where rates are going to go. And of course, in the gold space right now, it's it's really interesting. And we'll talk about that later as 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 we go through this. But, you know, typically there's an inverse relationship with a with a strong gold price and, you know, the dollar stronger the you know the US dollar is typically the weaker gold is but you're seeing a lot of strength in in the gold price right now now some of that might be geopolitically but it's it's really interesting and i think that you know gold in the US as an asset class is dramatically underowned in the US you know less than i think 5% of of you know US citizens have any exposure to gold uh which which is super interesting yeah that's something i'm definitely not you know, versed in, but I hear, you know, you, you know, every now and then you hear people that have, I guess, safeguarded some of their investments by having a certain amount of their money in gold versus just traditional stocks and things like that. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. I, I think gold has long been viewed as a, as a, a hedge against inflation or a store of value. And I think that, you know, the interesting thing from my perspective, being a finance and, and, you know, uh, economist is, you know, just the debt that's happened, that's been accrued in the world, especially in the U.S. with, you know, just under $34 trillion. And with the U.S. running one and a half to $2 trillion annual deficits, and now the cost to service that debt is almost a trillion dollars a year, which is more than the U.S. spends on their military. At some point, that's not sustainable. And, you know, the U.S. dollar will still be the world's reserve currency for decades to come, but you'll probably see an erosion every year of down one or two percent. And I mean, next year in the U.S. alone, there's seven and a half trillion dollars worth of government debt that that has to get rolled over, and that's a two point four percent, and that'll get rolled over at four and a half five percent. So if you look at the cost to service this debt, it it it's 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 getting to be a very meaningful number, and that's what's kind of scary. And and whether you're an investor in gold. This, you know, every investor should be thinking about this uh, because it's 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 becoming a real issue. All right. So help me kind of connect the dots on this, if you can. I understand just from an average person, not a finance background, that it seems like we're in an incredible amount of debt as a country and that debt is getting worse and that could create some issues. Where where does gold come into to play? Like, help me just make that final connection. Like, therefore. It would be smart if we had, you know, more investment in gold because it's a safer protected asset or how do I, how do I think about that? Sure. So I think clearly I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking my own book and the book of my family, but, yeah. but I think as a hedge against inflation and an, and an insurance policy against, you know, the U.S. debt, you know, U.S. debt situation becoming uh, unsustainable and there's a collision course, there's an inflection point coming. 
But I think because you're seeing really strong physical demand in gold, um, you know, there's only so much gold above ground. And I think that that's where that's part of the opportunity is money is not flowing into uh, the gold funds or into, into the gold ETFs yet. And I think that's a real opportunity when you'd be like trying to drink through a fire hose. You know, I, I think there's because the gold industry is such a small asset class on a global scale, it won't take a lot for, you know, money to flow in for these equities to be up one, two, three, four times uh, from where they are now. So so I think as an asset class, it's been beaten up. And I'm a contrarian, so I, I love looking at things that have been hammered that are down 60, 70, 80 percent. But there's a real business there. And it's not just gold. It's it's the mining space. And, it, you know, if you look at if you look at copper, for example, so there's been 700 million tons of copper mined the history of this planet up till now. The world needs twice that to be, you know, net zero, car, you know, carbon free by 2050. So the mining industry gets such a bad reputation, but yet everyone wants a new iPhone, a new iPad, yeah. everyone wants a new Tesla. And the only way that can happen is through responsible mining. And that's where, you know, I have four kids and, you know, up until recently, they all said, dad, you, you know, you're mining, that's terrible. You know, you're destroying the earth. Hold on, time out. And then when you take the time to educate the younger generation, like, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, we all yeah. want more solar, more wind. But when you take the time to understand how much metal and what kind of commodities go into making a solar panel or just how many pounds of metal are in a Tesla vehicle or an EV, uh, it, like you won't get there any other way than mining. Yeah. And so, you know, the U.S. and Canada, I don't want to talk politics, um, but the U.S. and Canada has such a rich endowment of almost every single metal, you know, oil and gas, everything. And some of the policies that our governments have chosen to make uh, are, are making things more expensive and are reinforcing this inflationary environment when we're off sourcing and, and, you know, to other countries and we have everything we need domestically as Canada and the U.S. to compete on every level on a world stage. And that's what's challenging for me is that the, this inflationary picture probably doesn't go away for a while. Mm. I mean, that's, that is super interesting because we saw a lot of that during COVID where it was exposed how much we were actually relying on the rest of the world for everything. And then all of a sudden when the distribution channels get shut down, we're like, we got no more masks. We got no more this. We got no more that. Yeah. And I think we all woke up and go, well, hold on. I didn't know we were, outsourcing that much right yeah and so how much potential is there especially in your industry for like you said how do we have a lot of resources right here that we could be like we do i mean you know when you look at the combined endowment that canada and the u.s have in terms of you know almost every metal every strategic and critical metal you know one thing the u.s is doing that that's, that's been great is uh you know critical metals are being viewed as strategic metals. So the U.S. government is saying, you know, basically, how can we help you develop this, process this? Can we help accelerate the permitting, uh, which, is, which is great. And for some reason, you know, copper is a strategic critical metal, according to the U.S. government, but there's half a dozen copper projects that are being, 
uh, slowed down with with a bureaucratic permitting environment, and it it's frustrating. But it but I think it, in a democratic environment, you're, that's probably not you kind of expect that for for it to be a slower process. If the Republicans get back in, maybe some of that gets undone. But I think again, it comes down to the way the way mines are built nowadays, as a, as you know how they were built fifty years ago, seventy years ago. It's very different, and you know I think ESG, so environmental social governance, is such an important part of of building a mine today. And that's where you know coming back to Dakota, Bob and I knew that that partnering with local expertise who are from South Dakota, born and raised there, was so important for us. Just going back to, to copper just for a second, is copper unique in terms of how it's mined compared to some other metal that makes it something that people need to go through the hoops? Or for the most part, you feel like, no, it's a political conversation that it's just mining in general and it's just getting shut down or getting held up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a you know more of an openness within the U.S. now, recognizing that mm-hmm. if the world wants to get to net zero by 2050 and wants to dramatically mm-hmm. lower the carbon footprint. Like I said, we need to mine. We need to not not just mine. We need to find. You know, the problem is yeah. there's been such an underinvestment in exploration. We need to mm-hmm. we need to mine in the next uh, 27 years more copper than we've mined in the history of this planet. It requires significant investment, you know, time, but also collaboration. Um, and you're just not seeing that there's, there's, you know, governments want a bigger, you know, piece of the pie it takes longer from a, a permitting timeline. And there's all kinds of, of, of social issues that exist. You know, there's a big uh, protest right now in Panama, uh, where, where the government signed an agreement and then there was public outroar and now it's going to a vote, you know, in certain countries mm-hmm. in Africa, there's been a, a huge royalty put in place. So it's, a, you know, it's a tough business. It's tough enough to find it, and then you have to do all your metallurgy and your development and permitting. And if you if you need to raise money, uh, and you're going to have startup kinks, it's a very tough industry and one that has a bad reputation, and maybe rightfully so. But I think there's been a lot of good that's been done. But but the only way the world cleans up its own act is through mining. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So take take us back to to South Dakota. Tell me a little bit about responsible mining, right? Responsible mining versus non-responsible mining versus what was done in the past. What are we doing now? And why does why does having the local the local team, the local, you know, crew in South Dakota, why why does finding them even matter for, for this as well? Yeah, I, I think I think when you look at the messaging that the governor of South Dakota has put out there really wants to support and create opportunities to keep the educated youth in South Dakota. And, you know, so here you've got this, the first big thing for the state of South Dakota was gold mining. And, you know, it really put South Dakota on the map and it really paved a lot of the wealth in, in the western part of the U.S. is from, you know, the, the home stake. Um, but you just look at, 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 you know, permitting, you look at bonding, you look at, you look at your uh, tailings management, um, you know, you look at the number of permits you need to build a mine. And, you know, Lead is a, is a small town. Deadwood's a small town. You know, this is right in the heart of where this mine was in production for 125 years. And you had massive community uh, support and buy-in. 
it was the biggest employer, it was the biggest source of revenue for, for Lawrence County, which is where the, you know, the county that these two towns are in. And it, it just became a part of their culture. And, you know, some places, some, some states are more supportive than mining than others. And this was an area that has a deep, fond, uh, supportive, you know, kind of culture of, of, of mining. And, and there, there's a desire to support it, you know, in the right way. And I think, you know, uh, President Biden is looking to uh, give preferential treatment to mining companies that are repurposing already disturbed land. So we're not actually creating a new footprint. And I think that, that that's a really important part of our strategy. We're trying to minimize our footprint. And a lot of what we're looking to do will be underground. Mm. So there will be no surface, you know, footprint. Um, those are things that we're really trying to do to help, um, you know, alleviate any, any surface disturbance. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there is both a marketing issue, like a PR issue, as well as just some real changing of practices that make more sense now than did then. But uh, you mentioned a show on Netflix called Deadwood that I'm going to check out that should highlight uh, a lot of this specific story. But the stories that I'm familiar with are people like Parker Schnabel, you know, from from Gold Rush. And there was a um, a particular episode where I got to kind of start to see some of the differences in practices and how they might be good for the earth versus not good for the earth. And he went abroad looking in different countries for some mines to invest in. And one he came to uh, was using like mercury to, you know, help separate the gold from the material. And he was just appalled at like, I can't invest in this mine. Like mercury could be killing the people that are doing this as well as what it's putting back into the earth versus things like he was doing uh, safer practices, but also even like the land that they used when they were done with it, doing things in a very uh, intentional way that trees grow back. And eventually you wouldn't even be able to tell that that was, you know, mine. Yeah. Is that similar to how you all are thinking about it? It's like, we can do this better than it's been done. Yeah. So, so for example, we have a bunch of drill pads. When we, when we, when we create a drill platform to drill from, we already have a bunch that are reclaimed and you can hardly tell that there was ever a drill mm. ring there. And, you know, part of the challenge the mining industry faces is, you know, maybe there are certain G7 countries or, you know, a certain environmental standard in the U.S. or in Canada or Australia, parts of Europe. And then you go to third world countries where there is no standard. And so you see some of the things that are done, some of the working conditions, you know, where where whatever the closest stream or river is used as, as, as a garbage. Yeah. And, you know, so, so there's... It's tough because there isn't one standard. And, but, you know, in, in, in the West or in the G7, you know, we're, we're judged by a very different standard. And you will not get financed if you're not at that highest level. Mm. Yeah. How did you explain? I'm curious. Like, how did you explain to your kids? Because uh, I love when we explain to kids, we have to get simple with it. You know, like, how did you explain to them, like, it's not what you think? Well, <laughs> so I just. I just took my 18 year old to, uh, to university in September and th maybe two years ago she had all of her friends over and, and they were, you know, asking me about what I did and, Oh, you know, you're in mining, a lot of eye rolling, a lot of judgmental, you know, comments, but then coming from a place where they know nothing. Like I love my kids, but 
in the grander scheme of things, that they're, they, they have a lot to yeah. learn, as, as we all do. And, uh, you know, just asking simple questions like, okay, how many Apple devices do you have? Silence. Well, I've got a, an iPad, I've got a laptop, I've got an iPhone, I've got AirPods, I just got the new Apple headphones. Oh, okay. And then I said, do either of your parents have an EV? They both do. Okay. Um, and, you know, just questions like when you go to, a, you know, a Arizona or Hawaii, do you notice any more the, the density of solar panels? Yeah. Okay. Where do you think that comes from? Then, then this is where the interesting, because it's that they have to figure it out on their own and they have to be able to connect the dots mm -hmm. for it to truly, you know, kind of have the chance to enact some change. And then, you know, it's like, oh, well, where does it come from? It comes from mining. Because the recycling market is like one-tenth of, 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 of what's required annually. Mm -hmm. And again, but, it, but, it's, but it's the younger generation saying we want to, we don't want any, 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 you know, emissions. We, 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 we can't keep polluting the earth. It's temperatures rising. Those are all true. But if, but if you're supportive of solar and you're supportive of, of, you know, wind and, you know, you want to have an electric vehicle, most people didn't know that until recently, you know, 40% of the energy that, that, that powers EVs comes from coal. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So um, we like to see them as totally distinct, separate things, you know? Yeah. So it's so that's where just education. And then, you know, kind of removing the sort of ego or emotion. And, um, you know, they all just went from being mining is bad to, OK, we need mining. There's got to be some kind of compromise to what it what happened over the last hundred years or 200 years. And to maybe where we should go. So that was that was kind of rewarding to, to see and just and just taking the time, you know, thirty minutes, no cell phone, full engagement, and uh, you know, kind of a safe place, no judging, no comments, just really trying to understand where they were coming from. And a lot of the information that the youth get today is on the internet, where it might not be vetted, might not come from a credible source, a lot of propaganda. So that was that was really neat to see that that change, um, that light bulb go. Yeah, well, I'm curious. Just as you look at your business and the things that you're invested in currently, or the 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 direction it's going, what has you most excited right now about the the future of what you're doing? Well, I I love how it's it 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 is this hypocritical topic, but I love how it's slowly the slow realization that the world needs more mining and the only way we get to carbon neutral is through mining and so there's been a massive underinvestment in almost every metal and that is catching up to the current market so i'm 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 quite optimistic about where i think certain metal prices can be in three to five years um so that, that excites me, but I'm also, you know, I'm also really concerned about what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip right now. I mean, that's really scary. And, um, you know, one of the questions I think was, was, you know, what, what concerns you with what's happening? And that's a powder keg right now. I mean, and, and that's, 
you know, the anti sort of, you know, anyways, it, it's, it's super scary and it's a powder keg and has the potential to really spill over. Um, and that is, uh, something that needs to be, there needs to be a solution to that before it gets out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's a, a whole other topic. I don't even know how to, oh, that yeah. is heavy. How to get into that it. is heavy. I can take it us in a different direction, <laughs> but I do think that it needs to be acknowledged. And so I appreciate, appreciate bringing it up. And the fact that like, Hey, all of these worlds are intertwined, right? I mean, you kind of teed us up with how do I talk to my kids? Well, helping them understand the bigger picture. Hey, understanding forty yeah. percent of your, you know, of of your energy made for these EVs is coming through coal, right? So some of those bigger perspectives to bring in some of the humility is there. But here's a, a thought. So I just wrote down some things, thinking about things that you said, and I'm thinking about just like almost how would you speak to how would you speak to an aspiring entrepreneur? who's looking at opportunity. Because I think some of the cool things about this conversation today that I hear is like, hey, there's opportunity, right? And I wrote down like one, okay, there's the opportunity for exploration, you know, sub copper. But you just mentioned just a second ago, hey, many of the metals are, are under, you know, under-resourced. And there's exploration is going to have to be a part of that equation. And then I hear capitalization, right? And going, hey, a lot of these projects or any entrepreneurial project is going to fail because they don't have the capitalization. They don't have the capital available for them to continue on. And then other things I, I hear like, hey, the local economy opportunity, right? Hey, in South Dakota, it's really cool because they've always been doing this. You know, it kind of feels like like the origins of their economy are right here. And so we're bringing that back. Some more jobs are coming back. We have some, you know, the educated youth are having opportunities to stay. Very inspiring, but that's going to provide opportunities anywhere. And maybe that local environment isn't one that has has had this in their history, but it still provides local opportunity, which sounds to me like a really cool entrepreneur opportunity. And then also just the mining standards, right, in that part of the equation. And so I just highlighted those as like, hey, those are four big things that you've talked about that all feel like, a mix back to like, hey, this is a hard thing to do, but it does provide a pretty cool opportunity if you have an entrepreneurial spirit yep. to go to go create some some change. So anything that you would speak to, just the aspiring entrepreneur who wants to do a hard thing and a good thing that's needed, anything that you'd speak to there about like, hey, you want to move into this industry and they don't have the history that you do. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think. Look, I'm. I've always been an entrepreneur, and 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 um, you know, you've got to work your ass off, and you're going to get you know a lot of no's, and some people can't handle rejection or failure. You know, I, I've sort of always viewed it as, as you're one step closer to a yes or to success, and you know, I think the biggest challenge that a, a lot of younger entrepreneurs face is trying to balance family and work and you have to have a partner that that supports you that doesn't judge you that lets you be you and supports your your dreams um but it's hard work and it's it's you know managing a private company versus managing a public company and and the public aspect and but i think aligning yourself with really good people people who are really smart in areas that you're not and then you know the whole team concept of of, a, of it being a meritocracy, of the best idea wins, not necessarily yours because you're the CEO. Um, and for anyone technical, whether that's a geologist or a mining engineer or, um, you know, computer science, you know, being able to talk to a finance guy, the person who's going to write the check 
If you're speaking, you know, gibberish or you cannot articulate why you're excited, you will not get funded. And that's something that I think they need to teach in universities is people get all worried about, nervous about raising money. It's, you get, no, you're, you're where you were where you started the conversation. So, you know, when I was putting together gold standard, you know, we probably got 50 no's before we got financed. And then every, every pitch, every meeting, you get a little better. You get a little more confident. And, you know, I think when you're humble and you have good mentors that have, have been there, done that, and, um, you know, want to see you succeed and are willing to push you and challenge you. You know, I've got a, a life coach, like a Tony Robbins life coach that I've had for, for over a decade. And he calls me out. He holds me accountable. We set lots of goals. Um, but surrounding yourself with really good people, the right mentors, uh, who don't have an ulterior motive or a different agenda, I think is really important. Awesome. Uh, really good, Jonathan. So yeah, what I was, what I was just sharing with you was that Honestly, I think those are like five things to win at life, and you know you, those could those could be coined at you, uh, coined for you. But again, good for any entrepreneur. But just thinking about anybody trying to find better in their life, whatever that whatever that looks like. I mean, just writing your five things down. Face face some no's. Like be willing to do the hard work. Right? You mentioned family and work. Like you got to have a partner to find some balance. Right? But like finding a good partnership. Right? That's important in marriage. That's important in business. Like you've mentioned, at least one or two business partnerships that you've had um, that are that are huge. Align yourself with good people and let the best ideas win. Right? Like meritocracy. Don't don't get used to just hearing yourself. I mean, I my uh, a business partner that I had talked about how easy it is to become like the dinosaur that or the T Rex with like the big hat, the big head you know, smashing their jaws, little arms of influence, and you don't actually have, have a team. Uh, and then, you know, even just the technical, like don't get caught up in your own expertise, be able to speak to the finance guy, be able to learn that language too. Right. I think that's just a good challenge for anybody going, Hey, do you know how to speak that language? And almost treating it like you're, you know, you better go find some Rosetta stone for finance. If you, if you plan to be successful and then just be humble and be humble enough to be mentored. Like you, you put humility and mentors together, but I think that's, that was huge, right? Is thinking about like, do you even have the humility to be coached? I was just, just on a coaching call this morning and I was talking to some, I was playing role of coach talking to somebody and I was like, Hey, you know, they were talking about one of their top performers in their, in their, uh, in their, in their business. And we had talked about, you know, about this person for like 20 minutes, talked in and out of the conversation, really trying to think about, hey, this is this is that high performer. We want to see them get to the next level, but it's been about 12 months right now and, and they're not getting to where I thought they would be. What, what do we do here? And there was a part of, I, we kind of got, got to the end and I just said, hey, is there anything that you know you need to do to help with their development? And gave her a little framework to, to think about how to help humans develop overall. But she just said, you know, I've been making some of these conversations like optional. Maybe I need to make them mandatory. And I thought that is probably what you need to do, but it's also a sign of that person who wasn't yet maybe humble enough to say, Hey, I need the mentorship. Like you're the COO is ready to serve me right now. Every day would give me time anytime, but they're not raising their hand. Right. And they're just, they're trying to figure it out on their own, maybe because of self-preservation or whatever that is. And you is. can save so much time. And so I think those are, those are killers. You can save so much yes. time and pain and headache 
by asking the right questions or having that mentorship, uh, you know, and, and I've, yeah. I try to not be judgmental with my kids and try to push it on them. Ultimately, they got to figure things out on their own. And, and my oh, wife and I, we oh. want to support them. We want them to, to find their own passion because that's what we've been saying. Like when, it, when you won't consider it work when it's your passion, you'll consider it work when you don't care about what you're doing. I don't have an interest in, in, in learning. And we always say, you know, knowledge is power. So, you know, and, and we try to, you know, we live in Vancouver. We live in, in West Vancouver, which is an affluent part of Vancouver. And, you know, we try to not raise entitled kids who are, who are victims and, 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 you know, but they're also used to pressing a button and getting what they want. Sure. So it's, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, lots going on. Well, I think on, on the fourth point that you made, this idea of speaking different languages, Jordan and I, at least I had a funny moment where we hired a sales coach because for he and I, we knew the business of delivering the product, which is, you know, coaching leaders, coaching executives, coaching performance, but it was different in how do you actually have a sales conversation that leads to more people choosing yes. Right. And so he had us run through some stuff. He's like, all right, give me a sales pitch. You know, like, how do you have this conversation? And what he said was, he goes, Drew, do you speak French? I go, no. He goes, well, you don't speak the language of sales either. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what does that mean? And he's like, you're talking to me like a coach, meaning you're talking about the process and you're talking about this and that. He's like, you're not talking to me like a salesperson in a, in a positive way. He didn't mean salesperson in a negative way, but like, you're not talking about what they need to hear. What's the result? You know, and he kept talking about the language of results. Someone just wants to know what's the result, what's the value of that result, you know, all that kind of thing. And I was like, you're right. I don't have a clue how to speak that language. And it sounds like probably what a lot of entrepreneurs have when they go try to get funding is they're speaking as a, as a you know, they have knowledge of their product and they have excitement of the ins and outs of it, but they don't know how to talk to an investor. Is yeah. that kind of what we're talking about? A hundred percent. And like, it's, it's really about knowing your own audience, like knowing who you're speaking to. And I mean, if you go to New York and if you can't, you know, explain to a fund manager and investor within two minutes of what you're doing and how you can make the money, you know, get out because there's a hundred other guys that want to come in and get funded. So, you know, that's really important. And, and, you know, look, it's, it's like, there's so much emphasis on, you know, short-term performance and, you know, how do you build a business when, when it's such a short-term quarter to quarter? And, you know, again, that's where... You know, people, and if you're in a position to choose the kinds of investors you want to align with, um, you know, it's, it's, you'll be way better off. Yeah. I got a kind of off the wall question. Uh, and this, this may be something that's already happening. And if so, I'm happy to know about it. But I like to think that the easiest way to motivate people is when you take what they're already motivated by and align it to a better purpose. Right. And so, like, if, if we can't help the fact that most people in the West are going to be motivated by capitalism, motivated by, by more, you know, then how do we incentivize them to care about things that are good for the planet or your industry? Well, let's, let's merge those interests, right? And so an example I was thinking about is one of my friends has found a way to help both with his taxes at the end of the year and get, you know, more profit is to invest in, you know, in certain like oil and gas mines, like a specific oil and gas mine. And if it does well, they make a profit off of it because of their investment. And there's also some tax liability, you know, some tax implications that are incentivizing to him. And it's like, Hey, 
However that just went, that was a way that they just got my friend's money in that industry that what he wouldn't have done had there not been some, some incentive, right, for him. Is there, is there a way in which gold mining could be similar where we could invest in a mine that you all own or something like that and there are those types of incentivizations for us to get more in the game than just buying gold or investing in the stock market? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you're looking at, we'll use the gold mining sector as an example, you know, one of the first things you should look at is, you know, does management have any skin in the game? Are they aligned? If, if you're going to buy some shares, did management get all their compensation through performance units, RSUs, stock options, or did they actually write, you know, a meaningful after-tax, you know, dollars going into the company? That alignment's really important, so that's one way to align incentives, and then I think when you're looking at, you know, our, our compensation committee has, you know, certain performance metrics tied to outcomes. And those outcomes, if achieved, are great for everyone. Um, you know, and, that, and that's one way uh, we've, you know, that, that's, been, that, that, that's worked for us. But just making sure that, you know, our values are aligned and, and, and what's important for us. Um, so I found that's also been quite helpful. And it's just, you know... We have some people who are just happy to go into work every day. Yeah. And they're they're absolutely blessed to have a job and they've got an amazing attitude. And then there are other people, not not in our company, because we have a no asshole policy in our company, but it's you know, they always want more and they want to skip four legs in the ladder to get to the next place before they're ready. And the challenge is a lot of people compare themselves to somebody else. So you see somebody driving a car or has the vacation home or whatever. And you, you don't know, you don't understand all the work that, that's gone into that. And you want that. And you, just because you show up does, doesn't entitle you to, 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 you know, to have that accelerated path to there. So that's, that's a challenge that, you know, I think all employers face is, is, is how to manage the expectations of, of, you know, your employees. But that's where hiring wisely. Um, yeah, so that, that's... Certainly with the younger generation, you know, my wife owns two F45 studios in Vancouver and she has, uh, you know, it's like a, have you guys ever gone to F45? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Like Mark Wahlberg's like the biggest shareholder and it's, it's a, now a private company, but it's, he does his crazy, you know, 4.30 AM workouts and, and, uh, it's like CrossFit meets personal training, a lot of body weight and it's, it's a lot of fun. And so a lot of her employees are younger, they're trainers and they're, wonderful human beings, but the, you know, they, they, the moment they get offered $2 more an hour, they want to go somewhere else. So it's like, you spent all this time onboarding and trading and the culture, and then they, 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 they go somewhere else. You're like, well, I, how did that, what happened? Um, and that will change with where rates are. And if, and if, you know, we do tip over into, you know, recession or just not as hot of an economy that we've been running on. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny. You mentioned something that I actually heard live uh, a few weeks ago. I was brought in to speak to a bunch of these different business owners. And one of the questions I got, I don't even know why we got here, but the question was, if I, if I purchase a new vehicle, there's just an example, or I take a vacation. She's like, there's people on my team that will make little offhanded comments like, well, must be nice. You know, must be nice. And she's like, what do I do about that? I was like, well, if it bothers you, my first question is, it sounds like you've got something that you're not sure about on the inside. So first off, why do you feel guilty about that? We got to figure that out first. As a second, 
couldn't your response be, it is nice. And if you want to work as hard as I have, I can show you how to get here. Right. And I was like, I want you to embrace it as an inspiration that like, sure, I've worked for the last 20 years and made sacrifices and did whatever so that I could afford what you just saw. And you at 25, if you want the same thing, I can show you. Does that, does that make sense? I just, I see that, that feeling a lot where it's like, must be nice. And then we're trying to figure out how to like dance around and justify instead of like, no, I worked really freaking hard. And this is one of the nice payoffs of, of what I've been doing the last two decades. Right. Yeah. I, I think you kind of nailed it. I think, I think, you know, when you look at the hard work, the commitment, and I mean, in my world, I mean, you know, I've lost, you know, my mistakes have been millions of dollars in mistakes but they're the best lessons you learn when you get your face ripped off or you put money into something and it goes to zero or you get lied to or misled or why didn't I think of that or your timing was off and you learn and grow with everyone. And then over time you make less mistakes and, you know, hopefully you grow and you learn and that starts to compound. But again, you look at, you know, knowledge is power and, and full immersion into a particular subject is, is, is really, really important. But again, there's so much, comparing yourself to someone else's situation when they could be totally different, you know, yeah. be your authentic self, you know, do what makes you happy. Uh, but there's such, so, some of my, some of the happiest people I know, um, are like ski bums who <laughs> one of my best friends, you know, ran a very successful hedge fund and sold it 10 years ago. And he skis four months of the year. He surfs the other four months, kind of invests, and he's like the happiest of all my friends, you know, and has a very simple life, but is, is very happy. Whereas I know people who have gazillions of dollars and houses across the world and private jets and they're miserable. Sure. So, I mean, find your passion, you know, try to have that balance. Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, there's no right formula that works for what, what might work for me is different than you. And right. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned having having made decisions or having been in situations where it felt like you got your face ripped off. Yeah. How do you, how did you, per, I don't care about everybody else, how Michael Jordan did it or whoever, but for you personally, how did you show emotional resilience? Like what kept you to get back up and keep moving forward versus it's stealing all your confidence and you take your ball and go home? Yeah, I mean, I learned a long time ago, my first boss in the industry, you know, just said, look, you're going to have lots of losses and you, you have to get to a place where you react the same for a loss as you do for a win, because you're going to have lots of little losses and hopefully you, you can recognize your losses earlier on and cut them, move on. And losses are part of life. Failure is a part of life. And what you do from those is what really kind of defines us. I think when I was younger, when, when you know, the, if I would have a big loss financially, you know, it, it would, it would have a, a greater impact. Um, but just that, you know, no sense in, in, in playing the victim, you know, dust yourself off, you know, learn from it and, and, and move forward. I've just never been uh, sort of a quitter. So, you know, I tried to learn from them and now it's, you know, you have these, 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 these battle scars from, from, you know, a couple decades of doing this and you just, again, you, you sort of work with good people, surround yourself with good people and, and, you know, ask lots of questions and, you know, kind of stick to what you know and have the best people that are, are experts in, in areas that you're weak. So, 
you know, as I've gotten older, it's been, you know, it's never easy taking a loss or getting your face ripped off, as I said. But again, it's usually a consequence of, you know, wrong timing, missing something, uh, your ego allowing you to drink the Kool-Aid or not recognizing signs, subtle signs that things aren't working out. Mm. And we all get these blinders on. And that's where, you know, just for me, when I make an investment, you know, what's changed from that, you know, business plan, from the thesis. And if things have changed, then you, you know, you need to look at that data and, and, and make a decision. Whether you, you take a loss, you sell, or you double down, or whether you get more involved. Um, but to be unemotional from it, because it is just business, yeah. unless someone is going out of their way to, to lie, steal, or cheat, that's different. Yeah. Do you have a favorite loss? <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually I do. Um, so a year, about 15 months into the business, uh, this was 99, 2000. So tech stocks are booming. You know, um, I made a million and a half dollars in my first year as a broker doing lots of trading and lots of investing. Wow. And I was a, a young green, you know, 23 year old. And, um, losing all that money. And then because I had, um, part of that on margin. So not only did I lose that, you know, million bucks, whatever, I ended up owing the brokerage firm like 50 grand. <laughs> so it was just, it was super humbling because I thought I was, you know, I thought I was really smart and had it all figured out. So that's where it really taught me to be humble. Um, it's a long-term business, you know, Knowledge is power, um, and you know overnight wealth. You have to grow it; it takes time. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the kids today, you know, who are in Bitcoin, you know, there's a, there's a couple guys here in Vancouver that did really really well, and the challenge was some guys didn't actually sell their bitcoins, and they would borrow against this newfound wealth. So then, when Bitcoin came off, these guys had to sell assets and got and got killed. But when Bitcoin went from six, seven thousand to sixty-eight or whatever the top was, there was so much wealth created, you know, on paper. Right. But until you monetize that, it doesn't matter. So, you know, so, 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 so that to me was was you know an awesome reset. I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. I had myself. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to go through a nasty situation where I where I my net worth went to zero at. at you know, 46 with a wife and four kids. But I learned that and that taught me, you know, to be, to be humble, um, you know, just it, it, to look at things differently. So, and, you know, I, I, I do believe in karma and how people who are really cocky and loud, you know, typically are the weakest guys in the room and the world has a crazy way of, of writing those situations. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Now, I mean, it's definitely, you know, a world-class example of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset, right? That like really how you just framed it for us as listeners really is a great example of a growth mindset. Where's the lesson? How could this make me better? I'm playing a long-term game. I'm expecting, I'm expecting to keep going versus that fixed mindset that like, this just exposed me. This just showed me I'll never be a success. See, there's the evidence. I tried this thing and it failed and now I'm going to quit, right? Um, so there's a really robust, almost an anti-fragile 
um, kind of mindset surrounding your ventures right now that seems to even take losses and spit it out into some sort of lesson or progress? Well, <laughs> I listened to, uh, do you guys ever listen to uh, Jocko's podcast? Yeah. Uh, so there's a podcast, it's one of the earlier ones, and he talks about um, Is it what good? he does. Pardon me? Was it where he says good yep. whenever things happen? Yeah. No. Yeah. So Explain that. Yeah. So just, you know, Jocko was, was uh, he, he would give different scenarios where, you know, they'd be in a really, really hostile environment and something would go wrong and he'd be like, you know, good. You know, uh, he lost his, 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 his kit, you know, good, you know, um, hurt himself and, and, and had to dig deep to go on, you know, good. And that's, yeah. you know, I think, I think you can look at, at those, you know, situations and quit and not try or dig deep and, 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 and move forward. And, you know, great things happen when you're outside your comfort zone. And I think that, you know, I did this whole Tony Robbins thing 10 years ago where I walked in the hot coals and oh, yeah. four amazing things with Tony. And, and, uh, the last one I did, we got, we were trained by like, you know, seal team six and drew, you actually look like a, a seal guy that was on Jocko, uh, you know, years ago, I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll get it for you. You, you do look like, are you, are you a seal? You're making me feel were. so good. I, <laughs> I wish that's amazing. Um, yeah. So that whole mindset, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I try to take from that. I was talking to a Navy seal this morning though. So okay. maybe, maybe he rubbed off on me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. So, um, did you go to the, the date with destiny? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I did the day with Destiny, you know, walked on the hot coals, and then I did this, um, it was this uh, this membership thing where we did four events in one year. We did this appreciation and abundance uh, in Africa, the safari, we got to rebuild the school, and that was really powerful. Uh, there was advanced uh, negotiation, which was at his resort in Fiji, which is, you know, magical. There was a financial theme going in Whistler, where a lot of people don't know this, but some of Tony's clients are the, are the most successful money managers, you know, athletes, lawyers, politicians, you know, so getting, um, you know, Kyle Bass and, and Ray Dalio to, to speak at these events who are clients of Tony's. Wow. Really powerful. And then there was a relationship seminar, which was really interesting in Hawaii. And that was about polarity where when a man's in his, in his masculine and a woman's in her, in her feminine polarity opposites attract. Although there was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was maybe not the right fit for some people. <laughs> That's a different discussion. But uh, <laughs> during that time, you know, every morning we were trained by this master chief SEAL Team 6 dev grew like animal. And, you know, we were doing these kind of simulated sparring sessions. And if he didn't feel what you were bringing, I mean, he would make you feel that big. Wow. And this, this was a guy built like Jocko. And you were just intimidated, even if you were a fighter or you know, had any experience in that. It was totally irrelevant. I mean, this guy was such an alpha. And you get into the ring with this guy and you're horrified. And then he would just poke you and push you to bring out the best in you, to, to get outside of this, this shell. It was so effing humbling. Uh, but it was fantastic. Wow. Man, super cool. Like I've seen just from the outside. Yeah, wow. Like I watched, you know, his documentary, uh, I'm Not Your Guru, which I thought was 
really helpful, especially if you were a Tony Robbins skeptic, which I wasn't, but he is such a big figure that it was really cool to see how authentic his care was. That shown through in the documentary. Like, you can't fake this. You can't fake this level of care for people. He does, he does really care, and his wife is a, 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 an amazing human being. But if you just look at what he's – who seeks him out and wants help. Yeah. It's the yeah. best athletes in the world across, you know, any sport. It's – you know, he was brought into – he's got an affiliation with, with the U.S. military and there's some of the special forces that he was asked to come in to, to, to help improve the snipering scores or different parts of a military branch that were not where the U.S. military wanted them to be. And he would change it from, you know, being bottom of the pack to number one. Hmm. And, so, you know, but uh, it's very humbling because you have to be – you have to be open and have thick skin because, you know – in order to achieve the best outcomes for yourself, you have to get outside of your comfort zone and it's, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that, I mean, how do you get the calluses on your hands is by doing the hard work to get the calluses on your hands. Which is funny. um, You know, most people would assume if you're going to, and this is in general, if you're going to go to counseling or if you're going to go seek a coach or if you're going to whatever, man, you must be really struggling, which by the way, if you are struggling, why wouldn't you like, that's great. But then you also find out some of the top people in their fields yeah. are using the same resources for that final 5% or that next edge, you know? Yeah. And Tony's about having these breakthroughs, right? So, so you'll be like pushing up against a wall, pushing up against a wall, and the definition of insanity is the same thing over and over again. But he's about helping these, making these small little adjustments that can have this like magnifier effect where you get this massive breakthrough. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I... I, I um, I have a lot of time for, for, for what Tony's all about. And the coach I have was through that was through Tony and, and, um, you know, I've had him for 10 years and I speak to him once a month and see him every time I go to Florida and he's, you know, ex special forces was a, you know, an executive has had his body like broken 10 times over and, you know, finds a way to have some, you know, physical miracle where he's running marathons again. And it's super inspiring. And again, people don't know limit, you know, their own limitations. Yeah. When, you, when you're doing a push-up and you, okay, I can do 30 push-ups, and then you stop the moment it gets hard. No, you should be doing 10 more. That's where you get the real benefits, the real results. And but that's almost in every industry. You know, people, a lot of people, the majority of people quit the moment it gets tough. Mm. But then those same people want to judge people who are successful, who put in the blood, sweat, and tears. You know, didn't sleep you know, challenging home life or you sacrificed, you know, I mean, so, and they play the victim. Yeah. What was the, what was the, maybe we'll end here. Unless Jordan, you've got another question. I know we're, we've already used a lot of your time. What was the most meaningful breakthrough or most meaningful um, resource or thing that has come out of just that entire world, whether it be Tony himself or the coach you have or whatever, like where did that most meet your life in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think I think I had a, you know, I had an amazing mother and a shitty father. Um, I mean, he taught me a lot of good things, but it would have been very easy for me to continue to play the victim. So I think when when I first did that Tony Robbins, like 15 years ago, you know, and just, you know, sort of eradicating that that mind, that thought process, that that belief um, and that I had like no right being the victim because of where I grew up and, and all that stuff. And then when you sort of put things into perspective, it was like, okay, 
you know, shame on you. Let's, <laughs> let's get rid of that way of thinking and, and so much to be happy for and blessed to, to have in my life. And, um, you know, I think at that time I was comparing myself to other people or where I wanted to be. And, and then when you stop doing that, it, just the level of happiness and fulfillment goes up dramatically. Mm. Heck yeah. Awesome, brother. Well, this is, uh, Jordan, thank you for saying yes to this interview. He approved this one. I have loved talking about the gold world. I've loved meeting you. And even more so, uh, man, just the last half of this interview has been so fun meandering through a variety of subjects, but especially this last one. So appreciate your honesty, yeah. your vulnerability, and taking the time to share your wisdom with our listeners. This has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much, guys. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.